Lord, may the words that come from my mouth be inspired by your Holy Spirit. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today's uh, sermon is a little bit different um, in that uh, it's in two parts. Uh, so there's a bit, and then there's some more of our liturgy, and then there's another bit. Um, it's not double the length, and you may hopefully be pleased to know. But Good Friday doesn't seem quite right until I've sung when I survey the wondrous cross. There's something about the song, regardless of which melody it is sung with, combined with the lyrics, that just moves me. I don't mind if it's done in a traditional way or with a more modern twist. There's warmth in this classic hymn that brings comfort that, as young people say these days, gives me all the feels. For a song that was written back in 1707, it stood the test of time. But the story behind the song has been moving people for almost 2,000 years. My prayer, as we gather together, at the best estimate of biblical scholars, 1,990 years after the actual event that we might be moved again. As I was preparing for what we might share uh, this morning, I watched a YouTube clip of uh, this hymn that had been matched with some scenes from the movie The Passion. And I must admit, I stopped the video after about 30 seconds. It just didn't seem right. Such a beautiful song with such a gruesome film clip. I'll show you what I mean. When I gets more gory than that. And it really challenged me to ask why I reacted this way. I love the song. The movie, in my opinion, is the most profound cinematic representation of the death of Jesus. Why don't the two seem to go together for me? In Paul's letter to the Corinthians, he writes, but we proclaim Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. The Gentiles did certainly feel that this was foolishness. In a piece of ancient graffiti, a Christian is mocked. The, uh, the writing transcribed under, underneath this picture is, Alex Amenos worships his God, depicting Jesus on the cross with the head of a donkey. But for Jews, Paul says, it's a stumbling block. 
The phrase stumbling block perhaps is a bit too soft in English. The word that Paul uses in the original Greek is scandalon, from which we get the word scandal. To understand the emotion this symbol evoked, we do have to get a bit gory for a moment. The cross was an instrument of brutal torture. I mentioned in my sermon last Sunday, on Palm Sunday, that the greatest honour in an honour-shame-driven Roman world was a parade called a tribute, where they dressed a conquering general in a laurel crown and a purple robe and cheered him through the streets. And there's some definite parallels that can be drawn with Jesus' entry into Jerusalem, without the robe and the crown, of course. On the flip side, the greatest shame in the Roman world that anyone could experience was another parade. To carry your cross to be crucified. While you did this, people mocked and jeered. They spat and they threw anything that they could hold. Anything that would draw shame on this person. It's in this parade that Jesus gets his crown and his robe in what is a spiteful parody of a man who would be king. We know beyond historical doubt that Jesus was executed by Romans in a way that was reserved for slaves, rebels, and the ones that they wanted to disgrace. We know that they put a notice above his head. It was normal practice to state the crime for which a person was being executed. But in Jesus' case, they wrote it in all three relevant languages, in Hebrew, in Latin, and in Greek. They wanted to leave no doubt that the reason this man hung on this cross was that he claimed to be the king of the Jews and that others claimed that he would be king of the Jews. And this was the most brutal of deaths known to humanity at that time. Roman orator Cicero describes it as the most cruel and terrifying penalty. And Jewish historian Josephus described it as the most pitiable of deaths. For Jews, tens of thousands of Jewish men were executed in this way, hanging half dead, sometimes for days, covered with flies, while passers-by continued to hurl insults 
and crows pecked at their flesh. Their bodies hung in prominent locations to stand as a warning to other would-be troublemakers, rebels, and those who might disgrace those in power. Helpless relatives stood back in distress while rats scurried over their bodies. It's not a pretty image. You would not use the word cross in polite Jewish company. It was offensive. It was scandalous. But for Christians... 1,990 years later, we've turned a symbol of graphic torture into jewellery and decoration. Like the song and its imagery, a gold-plated, diamond-studded cross doesn't quite feel right when you understand the graphic nature of this implement of torture. I realise some of you this morning may be wearing crosses around your neck. If you are, I invite you to hold it. If not, I'm sure like me, you have one in a jewellery box at home or many. Or you might like to look at our cross here or our cross hanging from our ceiling, decorating our church. Doesn't feel quite right, does it? Please be seated. Why is this story so powerful? Why did Jesus have to die in such a horrible way? The good news is you don't have to have the answer. You don't have to be a musician or an acoustic specialist to be moved by beautiful music. You don't have to be an author or a literary critic to be moved by a powerful story. No story has moved people so dramatically and so consistently as the story of the cross. One of the reasons that it has made such an impact is that the story mixes contradiction with paradox, certainty with confusion, horror with hope, and faith with doubt. Despite what you might have thought earlier in my message, 
I do want to lead you towards hope and point you in the direction of hope this morning. I do want to reclaim the beauty of our decorations and our jewellery. But don't we value something more when we realise and understand its cost? No one, not even Jesus' closest disciples, expected Jesus to die this way on this day. There is deep significance in the historical fact that Jesus brought all this to a head at Passover time. The timing was no accident. And the early Jewish Christians were quick to understand the hope embedded in the perfect timing of Jesus' death. St. Paul gives extensive Exodus narratives throughout Romans 5 to 8 to help the Gentiles understand this imagery. Passover was a time when the Jews celebrated the Exodus and prayed that God would do again, but on a grander scale, what he had done all those years ago. The point of the Exodus was that the people of Israel could worship their God. The climax of the Exodus story was not the giving of the law or reaching the promised land, but the construction of the tabernacle, which symbolised new creation, the coming together of heaven and earth, all as was intended, the place where God's people could worship, where hope was realised. Choosing Passover to bring this to a head was how Jesus believed Israel's God would become king to usher in the kingdom of God that Jesus had been subversively teaching about over and over again. To announce God's kingdom at Passover is to announce that God is at last overthrowing the dark powers that enslave God's people. This is the time for God to reconstitute God's people, rescuing them and reordering them for new life and new tasks. This announces, as Isaiah prophesied, that God is coming back in glory and power. It means freedom now and kingdom now. Not just when we die, but now. The cross meant what it meant in light of what happens next. Come on Sunday and we'll get excited about the resurrection. But in the meantime, we can be excited by the hope we find in the full meaning of the cross as it's found in the life and the work of Jesus' followers. That's you and me. In our life and in our work, we find part of the meaning of the cross transformed and transforming lives, those lives that we're called to lead in the power of the Holy Spirit are all part of the meaning of the cross. Your hope is not singing sentimental songs. Your hope is being moved to go out there and be transformed and be part of the transforming agenda that continues to be the kingdom of God. 
they did some research around the time of the last census and found that one of the biggest turn-offs to non-church goers was celebrities, including sports stars, talking about their faith. Interesting in light of what's happening at the moment. But the number one attractor of people not currently going to church that might consider, make them reconsider their position is when people they know and meet lived and live what they believe and share what they believe in their words and actions. Because Jesus has at last overthrown the dark powers that enslave us. It is Christ in us that is the hope of glory. Your hope is not hanging around your neck. Your hope is in the preciousness of the act that hangs close to your heart and stirs you to act in ways that demonstrate hope. And as a mark of that demonstration, I invite you as uh, the music is playing to come forward and to pick up one of our many stickers uh, that is at our decorative cross and make your way to our windows where we have some plain white cardboard crosses. They're facing outwards so that the world can see. And at the end of the service, they'll be turned around so that the next service can put their hope and your hope will be visible to those outside. Please don't throw away your expensive jewellery. But please see your expensive jewellery as a reminder of why you have hope. Amen.